um, as you may know, in our cultural context and, and really around the world, uh, there are these people uh, that take time to do these, uh, these surveys that then figure out statistics that, that give us some ideas of what's going on. And so sometimes you get that phone call that you know it's a number you don't recognize. You're nervous because you want to answer it because it might be important, but you know if you do, it's going to be some salesperson or some survey. So you answer it, and then it's a survey, and you're just so bummed, right? Uh, so, but those surveys actually do have uh, some very helpful uh, uh, results for us because it helps us kind of understand things. So a survey was done fairly recently Uh, And they took uh, people that were between the ages of 19 and 28, and they made sure as a sort of a a, a unifying fact that these people, specifically specifically it stated that they they don't attend church and they they don't claim to, to be a Christian or follow Jesus. So this is the people that are not in church, 19 through 28. And they asked them this question, if I say to you, a Christian or the church what are some words that come to mind that, that you can write, that, write down? And so they took words, okay? There was a word that over 90% of all the people surveyed had on their very short list. One word that they were like, that definitely describes the church or Christians. What do you think that word was? <laughs> Hypocritical. I heard that there. I heard Jesus as well. Jesus wasn't uh, kind. That wasn't on the list either. I heard that. Hypocrite was on the list, but it wasn't the one that was 90%. You know what was 90% plus? Judgmental. Judgmental. That's it, right there. Christian church, what do you think? Judgmental. Judgmental. Now, if we sit here uh, in this space, I think it would be fair for me to say, knowing the culture of this place, that deep down inside of each of us, we kind of go, I think judgmental is bad, right? I mean, we kind of go, judgmental is bad. It's sad to me that they think of us as judgmental. If you're going, yes, judgmental, I'm glad they have that word on the list, <laughs> then, then we got some work to do, okay? We got some work to do <laughs> because I don't want that word on the list. I think being judgmental is bad. Do you know what verse in the Bible is most memorized or famous outside of the church to the world out there. They did a survey. What verse is most famous? Most people can quote this one in some way. There you go, baby. For God so loved the world that, no, no, not that one. God, no, do not judge lest you be judged. Everybody on the planet can quote that one because they experience the church is judgmental, and they have that one on us, right? Ah, I got one from your book, and it says this, don't do it. And so that's the deal. So if we look at it from that perspective, we don't want judgmental to mark us as a church, as a, a people group that follow Jesus. The Bible does have a verse in it, several actually, don't judge lest you be judged. Conclusion, right? Don't judge. Don't judge. Don't ever judge. Don't judge under any circumstances. You shouldn't judge, and it makes us judgmental, and then the world doesn't like us, and then the gospels, and then don't judge. That would be a conclusion that we would, we would be able to draw. So, so uh, don't judge. Then you got this. There are these places on this planet that actually judgment becomes important, right? Because judgment actually uh, comes from the idea of justice, right? And when there is an injustice then there's got to be someone or some body of people that can judge the injustice so that we can remedy the injustice, okay? If you kill someone and you get caught, we want someone to judge you, right? And not just God, 
Like we, we actually want you to go to a court and to people to find you guilty and then put you away so you don't kill other people. Okay? If you speed, you get pulled over. The officer kindly goes, I'm just enforcing the law. If you'd like a judge to determine whether this ticket is valid, I've got it on this little thing right here and I'll be at the court, then you can feel free to go see the judge and they will judge us. They'll judge me as a cop, they'll judge you as a person, they'll judge my machine, and I will win. Right? So, there is in the world a space where judging is appropriate and necessary for some form of order and where injustice will actually turn into justice. And in the scriptural sense, we have been talking quite a bit over the last few weeks about the idea of guarding each other, of being watchmen and watchwomen for each other, of, of being zebras checking for lions for each other, right? And so part of that process is if I see something in you that's foolish and going to lead somewhere it shouldn't, it is my uh, obligation as well as my privilege as well as what I would hope I want to do to step into your life and say, I, I think you're living kind of foolish and it's going to go places you don't want it to go, so can I call you back? So there is judgment that is coming. I am judging you. So conclusion, judgment is good. We should judge. Do you feel like you're in the princess bride? I clearly cannot choose the glass in front of me. But I clearly cannot choose the glass in front of you. If you're not a Princess Bride fan, you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. But not in this case, because the Princess Bride is awesome. So the question we land on, right, as we're looking at this issue is, uh, to judge or not to judge? That really is the question, isn't it? To judge or not to judge? What should we do? We have been traveling through the book of Acts together over the last few years, uh, and as we're journeying, we've been journeying specifically with a man named Paul. Paul is journeying through the known world, carrying the beautiful revelation of the gospel uh, to the people in the known world, and as he goes, he's planting churches. He's establishing uh, groups of people that are unified in Christ to be light, life, and freedom to the culture around them. And so he is now on his third missionary journey or church planting adventure. In his second church planting adventure while in Macedonia, in the southern part of Macedonia, he came across a city named Corinth. In Corinth, he lingered there for almost 18 months. Remember, he buzzed through Macedonia really fast in the cities there, Philippi and Thessalonica, uh, down into uh, Athens and Berea. He was there for weeks at a time. Corinth, he gets there, he settles in for 18 months. Corinth is during Paul's time, the Vegas of our day, right? It is this city, incredibly fast growing. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, over a 90-year period, it had become huge, and it was a transient city, and so a lot of people there came and went, and so when you come and go, there's not a lot of consequence. It ends up being a city with a lot of opportunity for all sorts of stuff, and what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. That's how it worked, and if you were in Corinth, nobody told you what to do or what not to do. This is the city Paul spent a great deal of time in. He planted the church there. The church matured. It became became a place of light, life, and freedom for the culture. Paul left Corinth, went back to Galatia. He's now traveling back to Ephesus, and he writes a letter from Ephesus to Corinth in response to some news he received from Corinth. Here's the news he received. Things are not going well in the church, right? So somebody came and reported to him, the church is acting crazy. 
They're, they're totally foolish. And this church you spent 18 months maturing, teaching, developing, you've taught them all this stuff already, and they are ignoring all of it. And here's where it started. What they did is Apollos came to town. You remember Apollos from Ephesus, uh, who in Ephesus bumped into Priscilla and Aquila, and then Priscilla and Aquila led him to the gospel, the fullness of the gospel. He went up to Corinth to go and preach there articulate man, unbelievable, came from the best schools, and so he's in Corinth teaching, and the people in the church in Corinth are like, we love Apollos, Apollos is awesome, and so there was a group of people that said, you know what, Paul is out, Apollos is in, Paul's not here, where's Paul? Paul left us, Paul abandoned us, Paul didn't care about us, and anyways, half the stuff Paul said, kind of dumb, so I think I like Apollos, Apollos seems really inspiring. So they went with Apollos. There was another group of people that said, oh, no, no, no. Paul is the founder of this church. Paul is who we listen to. I'm not going to listen to Apollos. If you're going to listen to Apollos, I'm not going to listen to Apollos. I'm going to listen to Paul. And there was another group of people that said, Paul, Apollos, whatever, Peter, he's the man. Peter actually wrote us stuff, and Peter, he was with Jesus. Was Paul with Jesus? I mean, he saw him on the road to Damascus, but really. And was Apollos with Jesus? No, Peter's old school, baby, and we're sticking with old school. And so there was all this dissension in the church and they were picking and choosing and throwing judgment around like crazy about who actually has authority and who doesn't have authority and who, who do you listen to and who don't you listen to. And then out of that, because essentially they had no authority, they just started doing whatever they thought was right in their own minds. Hence, when Paul wrote Corinthians, he starts out in the book of Corinthians about dissension. Uh, you guys are like just not unified. And then the very next thing he says is, now there is wisdom from God and there is wisdom from man. Wisdom from man, when compared to wisdom from God, is foolish and God's foolishness is wiser than man's best wisdom. So you got to go with the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. He was kind of subtly saying to them, stop thinking you know it all. And now, he writes to them out of that little piece, the next section of the letter. Turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided for you, uh, you can go to page 619, 619, 1 Corinthians. Now, remember, things are pretty messed up in the church in Corinth. Paul is writing this letter as a corrective letter. It's going to be harsh to swallow at times, but the great gift it is to us today is this. When you are trying to correct a church that's getting it all wrong, what do you tend to write about? How to get it right. That's right. So Paul's going to say, here's what it ought to look like so that they can go, oh, we don't look like that. Good point. Why don't we try? And so for us, we're able to really learn from this to go, here's what it ought to look like. How about we just do that before we have to be corrected, right? So awesome. So we get into this letter and we see how that plays out. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth now, and remember how this letter started? It started with a greeting, and at the end of the greeting in chapter 1, verse 3, it said this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is mad at the church of Corinth. They're acting foolish. How does he begin? Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. I love that because that must measure everything we do as a people group. When we follow Jesus, everything we do, let me say this again, everything we do should start with the motive and the action of grace and peace to you. That's where it must begin. 
Does Paul stop at grace and peace? No. Grace and peace measures everything. It continues on, but he goes beyond simply grace and peace to you, and I'm going to walk away. He dares to offend for the sake of grace and peace, for the sake of freedom, for the sake of maturing, for the sake of life. And that's what you're going to see him do. Now look here. We jump into chapter 4, verse 1. We've seen in chapter 1, 2, and 3 a lot of the stuff about God's wisdom and about the breakdown and the division in the church and all these different Apollos and Peter and Paul. And now he writes to them this, chapter 4, verse 1. This is how you should regard us. Now he's talking us, Apollos, Paul, Peter, and anybody else that is teaching and leading. You should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So he's saying, look, you're trying to figure out which one of us is the better leader, the better articulator, the better inspirer. We are all in the same boat and you should regard us as the same. What are we? We are servants of Christ and what do we carry? The mysteries of God and we steward those. And what is the mystery of God? Paul has told us in multiple other letters, right? The mysteries of God is the gospel because the gospel is a mystery that we, while we were still children of wrath, sinners, hating God, running away, chasing the passions of our flesh, that God in his great love would come to rescue us at no act or fruition of ourselves is a mystery. So he says, if you carry the gospel, then you are a servant of Christ and you are a steward of the mysteries of God. And that's how you should regard us. Now look at this. Moreover, it is required of servants that they be found faithful. So you see what Paul's saying? You should regard us as servants of Christ and carriers of the gospel, and it is appropriate for you to expect faithfulness to come out of our lives. Why is it appropriate? If you carry the gospel to speak the gospel, but you're not living the gospel, then you are a hypocrite. That is not appropriate, okay? That, then you don't actually believe the very thing you carry, and you're not carrying the mysteries of God. You're using the mysteries of God, and you can talk to God about that later. So that's not a good idea, right? So he says, you should expect from us faithfulness, and you should expect from us that we'll be good stewards of the gospel. Now look what Paul's going to do. So he kind of says, there are some expectations, appropriate and good. But, he says, but. Now he's going to change the tone. Here it goes. But. With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. I love the way Paul just said that. He just offended them. Did you notice that? (laughs) He just went like this. You know what? It's totally appropriate for you to feel that I should be faithful. The fact that you don't, the fact that you think my motives were messed up when I left, the fact that you think I'm not as good a teacher, I don't have the authority, the fact that you're judging me, let me tell you how much consequence that has on me. Zero. Zero. I don't care what you think of me. I don't care how you judge me because who are you? You can't judge me. You don't have the intellect, power, knowledge, spirit, insight, or anything else needed to judge me. So when you judge me, I don't care. That's what Paul just said. I don't care. Go go for it. Judge all day long. I don't care. Look what he says. He goes on. As a matter of fact, he says, I don't care if you judge me or by any human court. So he says, listen, I stand before God, and what happens in here is between me and God, and that's who judges me. I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what the world thinks about me. I don't care what any person thinks about me because people aren't God, and they can't judge me. See what Paul's saying? 
Look, he goes on. It's crazy. I love where he goes next. Look what he says next. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. So here's what Paul's saying. You cannot judge my motives, folks. You cannot judge my heart. You cannot judge my my rightness with God. You cannot judge my calling. You cannot judge what I am thinking, feeling, or why I'm doing anything. You can't. Nor can anybody else in the world. And wait for it, nor can I. You go, what do you mean you can't? You know yourself best. No, I don't. I hardly know myself. Half the time I'm doing stuff and I realize, oh, my motives are all wrong. I thought they were right, but they're not. They're wrong. I mean, when I, when I step in and I'm like, I'm going to love my wife and I'm going to be romantic all day long and I'm going I'm to do all, why am I doing that? Oh, because I care about Brooke deeply, because I want her to experience the wonders of my romance and care. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> all you guys, just get on with it, right? I mean, just you get it right. You know, there's motives, right? When we, when we care for our kids and we let them play video games all day long and we, and we give them spaces and we let them eat the ice cream, why, why? So that they will go to bed early and so that they will like us, right? <laughs> this, everything we do, everything we do, there's a part of us that's doing it for the right reason and a part of us that's doing it for the wrong reason and we can't even figure out in ourselves which is which. Was this right? Was this wrong? I am I'm preaching here because I want to honor God and bring Him glory. Not for the accolades? No. What if everybody stopped liking you? Well, that'd be sad. See, see what I'm saying? Like even when I start thinking about it, I want to say to you as you want to say to me, no, no, I do all things for the right reasons, but I don't even know that. I often find out my motives were wrong after the Spirit of God convicts me about things. So Paul's saying, you can't judge me. Nobody can judge me. I can't even judge myself. And so what does he say as a conclusion of that? Look what he says. He says this. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his condemnation from God. In other words, the consequences of what goes on inside of us is not yours to discern or yours to judge. Do you see he's keeping it in two spaces now? What goes on in the secret places of a man's heart, a woman's heart, what goes on in the motives of the heart are who's to judge? God's alone. Not even yours for yourself. You can't even judge yourself. Only God judges the heart and the motives of men. So the person, what the person's thinking, what they're doing, only God judges. And so there it is. Excellent. We have our answer, right? To judge or not to judge, we're back. Don't judge. It is God's to judge and God's alone and he's the only one that does it. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and we'll start on next week's message. No, I'm kidding. It's still part of this week's message. Go there for a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, very next page, 620. Look what it says here. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul is now writing to them and he says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. So what we understand historically is happening here is that this guy is currently 
actively acting out an intimacy with his stepmom. Everybody's weirded out. I know, so am I. And what Paul is saying is, guys, I've been made aware of something going on in the church that you all are aware of, that you all know of, and it is not even on the table of, well, we're not totally sure if it's sinful or not. We're not totally sure if it's appropriate or not. He goes, the the people in Corinth, the Vegas of our day, would hear about that and go, oh, that's weird. (laughs) They would go, I wouldn't do that. That's crazy. The guy is hanging out with his stepmom. And so he's like, okay, there's something going on in the church that is outside of even the regular world's tolerances and understandings, right? They're going to go, that's just not right. And look what he says. Look what he says. I love this. So then he says this, and you are arrogant, ought you not to rather, uh, not rather to, to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So he's, he's making the statement. Kind of, kind of feels a little odd, doesn't it? The guy doing that, kick him out. Kick him out. Does that sound like judgment to you? Kick the guy out. Paul just wrote the last chapter. Only God judges. Only God. And then he's like, I, I heard there's some guy that's living in this weirdness. Kick him out of the church. Okay, look what he says. Wait, it's, it's, it gets better. For though absent in body, Paul says, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Paul's having a moment, isn't he? Did he forget what he just wrote? Don't judge anyone. Okay, next chapter. There's a guy doing some stuff he shouldn't be. I'm not there, but I'm judging him right now. Kick him out. So now it's all confusing again, isn't it? We had it. To judge or not to judge, don't judge. To judge or not to judge, definitely judge. Because Paul's doing it and saying they ought to as well. What is going on here? What is going on? Now, the clue we get in this passage to the difference between what Paul was talking about in chapter 4 and what he is talking about in chapter 5 is massive. And here's the clue, right? It is in that line I just breezed over for a second, but let's go back to it. Chapter 5, verse 2. And you are arrogant about this going on. Ought you not rather to mourn. See, that's a very interesting statement for Paul to make about this particular issue. Here's what we know from the context and from a letter Paul writes to the church in Corinth later on called 2 Corinthians. We know that this gentleman who is acting out in this way belongs to the church. We know that he is a brother. In other words, he claims to follow Jesus. He claims to be part of the church. He claims to be one of them. He is publicly saying that this is not someone from the outside in the church disrupting. It's someone who's part of the body living foolishly in sin. So we already know that. And Paul's saying, you have a brother among you who is acting so obviously foolishly that Vegas would figure it out. Okay? Come on. We're not even arguing there. And you are arrogant about it. Why would he say arrogant? Why arrogant? That seems like an odd word to me. Well, you're arrogant about this person's sin. And then you figure it out. As you look at the context and you look at what's going on and you see what Paul writes later in 2 Corinthians, you figure out what he was saying is this. You as a church are tolerating this sin. That's obvious to the context, right? Paul's saying this is going on and you're doing nothing about it. It's a brother in Christ and arrogantly you're going like this. We, we know it's going on, but it's cool because we are full of grace. We are full of grace. In fact, 
what Vegas won't tolerate, will tolerate. That's how full of grace we are. Have you heard this before? I've heard this before. We are absolutely just puffed up and chuffed about our tolerance, about how much we as a church are willing to have among us. And he's going, you guys are arrogant in this. Should you, here's the big clue, should you not instead mourn this reality? What does he mean by that? I mean, of all the words you could have used, why use the word arrogant and then mourn? Why not use the word, should you not stand against this? Should you not, uh, not tolerate it? He goes, should you not be mourning this? See, what Paul is trying to tell the guys in Corinth is, have you forgotten what the gospel has told us about sin? Have you forgotten? I saw this commercial literally uh, two nights ago. I was uh, watching something on TV and I saw it. I, I saw it a couple of months ago. I think it was like you know one of those like subconscious memories. Like I've seen this before, but I don't know where. I know you've been there. Um, so I'm watching this commercial and this guy's dissecting a, a like a really strange looking monster on a table. But one of those monsters that comes out of a horror movie with the little mouth in the middle and then a bigger mouth and a bigger mouth like from Alien. You know, like the kind of thing that you know is going to kill you. Okay, you're like it's going to kill me. But thankfully, it's dead. Okay, and so he's dissecting it, and there's a whole classroom of of college students, and he's doing this thing, and he turns around to paint something on the board, and the monster comes to life, and it jumps up in the commercial, and you're like, what's going on? And it launches off the table at one of the students, like in a horror movie, and they scream, and everybody runs for their lives, and then this thing comes up. If people understood the dangers of tobacco, they would stop smoking, and then it crawls into a cigarette little box, the monster, and you're like, oh, like you wouldn't open that box. It's going to kill you, right? What is the point of the commercial? To say to you that one of the great human tragedies is that the things that we find pleasure in that we want to continue to do, we choose to ignore the monstrous realities that lay in the shadows of that pleasure, right? Pleasure's not a bad thing, but the things we want to step into that are dangerous, we just pretend they're not dangerous. This is what Paul's saying. If you know the gospel... And you understand that it's revealed to you that in the beginning we were created to be intimate with God, to know Him fully in all of His freedom and all of His wonder and all of His life. And then we were going to make Him known out of that freedom. We're totally free, so we have no need for anything, no idols, no, no, no things that we need to try to fill ourselves with. So we just image God. And when the enemy of God convinced us that we would have a better life and have a better story if we just became our own gods and wrote our own stories and didn't do it, God's way, but did it our way. Do you remember what the gospel told you about that? That that led to sin and sin to death and death to destruction of all that is good except for God. And he has been redeeming that story. So what, that, what Paul's saying is, how, how are you arrogant about this? Should you not be grieving for the brother? Have you forgotten what that's doing to him? When somebody is living in a foolish, sinful lifestyle when they know Jesus, do you understand that it's destructive to their soul? Now, it's destructive to anyone, but people that don't know Jesus don't know that. So, it's a different ballgame. We'll get to that. When somebody actually knows Jesus, they know this, but they have chosen for, it's kind of like watching someone do something insanely dangerous. Look, I'm going to play with this gun and shoot it at myself and see what happens. And you're like, no, don't do it. That's not judgment. That's protection. That's not judgment. That's safety. That's love. That's me going, I'm not going to let you hurt yourself. And Paul's saying you should be grieving this, not, not jumping into this. 
Now, there's another assumption here that Paul also makes. How long was he in Corinth? 18 months. Did he teach the people in Corinth? Do you think he's repeating himself here? Yes, I guarantee you he's repeating himself. So he already knows this is not a church he was at for two weeks, so he's not having to go now. Let me unpack for you all the realities of how this plays. When he got the report back, he heard that they had found out about this, that that it had been made public, that the guy was living in this, yay, look at me, we can do whatever we want under the grace of God, and that the church was going, yay, grace, awesome. So he knew all of that. He also knew that the church knew how to handle approaching people that were struggling in foolishness, right? He'd already taught them that. So he's jumping to the end game here and saying, if this continues to go on in this story, you know where this ends. I've already had this conversation with you. You ought to have this guy removed from the fellowship of community. That's what you ought to do. Why? So if any of you do anything that you ought not to do, boom, you're out. That's not what Paul's saying at all. You'll see in a moment. Look what he says. He says, you know, I'm, I've already pr- pronounced judgment on this guy. What he means by that is this. I can rightly discern, as can you, that what the guy is doing is foolish and sinful. You with me? I don't know why he's doing it. I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know the motives of his heart. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt on that. But I do know that what he's doing is dangerous for him, for the woman he's doing it with, for the dad, whose woman that is, for any children involved, for the church, and for everybody else on the planet. It's actually dangerous, right? So I know that. I can discern that. So I'm already judging this situation and judging this guy's actions. That's what he says, right? He says this, I have already pronounced judgment, look, on the one who did such a thing. I'm pronouncing judgment on the one who did such a thing. He's done it. What do you want me to say? Look what he says this. When you are assembled in the time of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. <laughs> wow. I mean, are you nervous? I'm nervous. And I'm, I'm not just nervous. I'm a little like bent out of shape. Oh my gosh. Okay, the guy's been doing this. Deliver him together to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. I mean, you, you want to you take the 1117 and make it small again? Let's just go there, right? <laughs> Listen. The destruction of the flesh for what purpose? Watch. Here it is. I didn't finish the sentence. For the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See what Paul's doing so beautifully is he's essentially saying to the church, guys, you know better because you know the gospel. And what does the gospel say? When we come to know Jesus and we are rescued in our souls, Jesus then also reminds us that you were safest when you were submitted to the story I had for you, so I still have a story for you. Live by it, and if you don't, it's not going to go well on this planet for you. So what he's saying is for a guy like this, Do you want to watch himself destruct? Is that what you want? Because that's what you're doing, church. You're watching a brother self-destruct and you're doing nothing about it. What Paul's trying to say here is when you're trying to judge a man, don't. It's God's business. But when someone's acting foolishly and he's a brother or a sister in Christ and you know him, don't stand idly by while he self-destructs. And if you've tried everything else and he won't listen, here's, here's what you need to do. 
remove him from fellowship. Why? See, the church has misused this terribly. If you're not doing what we want you to do, you're out. Now, that's, that, that's, that's, that's exactly the sinful motive where this cannot come from, and that is judgment. It's this. The community of God is supposed to be, here's one of our tragedies, it's supposed to be the safest place on planet Earth. It's supposed to be the warmest place on planet Earth. It's supposed to be the place where we are most involved in each other's lives. It's supposed to be the place that nobody has need. Why not? Because when everyone ha- whenever anyone has need, those who have more than they need give to those who have need so that no one is in need. It's the place where our vulnerabilities are absolute, where whatever sin we are in the middle of, it, we are confessing to one another so that we can pray for each other and be healed. It's all over this thing. This is supposed to be the best place on the planet. And if you are living in this community with all those benefits, but you are living foolishly, those benefits can undermine the consequences of your foolishness. And then guess what happens? You think the monster you're playing with is a puppy. And you're like, it's just a little thing. But that thing's out to kill you. I do this to my kids all the time. You know, uh, they, they are now in the teen world. Are, many of my kids are teenagers, and the others think they're teenagers because they have teenager brothers and sisters. I'm like, no, it's the other way around. Learn from the wise. But anyways, um, so the, 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 I, I have these kids, and, and I tell them stuff, right? I give them advice because I'm in my 40s, and I'm like, I've been around the block, and I, I know this is not going to go well for you. And then they, they think it's, an, uh, uh, I don't know, a prerequisite to argue with me. I, I think that's what they think. You always have to argue with the parent just to make sure that their wisdom is sound except that you don't really think it sounds, so your argument is really just to prove that it's not. And so this is how we go back and forth. My kids love Jesus. They are missional. They're incredible children, and they talk back. So it's sort of the whole shebang, right? (laughs) The great kids that talk back. So when we do the talking back deal, then I feel obligated to kind of explain, and I explain to them, yeah, what you're doing right now doesn't seem like a big deal, but it will get to be a big deal because if you keep doing it, at some point it will go badly for you, and then it will go really badly if you're 27. Okay, and then they look at me, and every now and then when they just don't get it, I finally resolve myself to this. You know what? Do whatever you want. You want to do it that way? Go do it that way. I don't care. Just go do it. Just go do it. Do what you want. And I secretly, part of me is angry, and I'm like, this is going to go so badly for them. And then it dawns on me, what if it doesn't go badly? What if they go do the thing I just told them to do, and it really works out well for them? See, that's my nightmare, isn't it? Why is that my nightmare? Because if it goes well for them now, which sometimes it does, they will think they can keep doing it and it'll keep going well for them. But oftentimes the foolishness we live in, the reason we keep living it is because for a season it goes well. If you steal, for example, that actually goes really well for you. Honestly, think about it. You get what you want without needing to ask permission and nobody knows. Whoa, never thought about that. Yeah, it's pretty awesome, isn't it? until the pattern gets larger and you steal something that matters and get caught and your consequence is prison. Oh, yeah. See, the consequence in my home is being grounded for half an hour maybe. Well, it's more than that, but, you know, little things like that. But eventually it's prison for life. And so I'm like, the consequences get bigger. So I tell my kids, do what you want. And then I pray, God, make it go badly for them. Why am I praying that? Because I want bad things to happen to my children? No. Because I don't want bad, bad things to happen to my children. So if little bad things happen now that teach them not to live foolishly, then they will be saved from big bad things in the future. 
And that's what Paul is saying here. A brother is living foolishly and bad things are going to happen. So engage and do something about it. I've already judged his actions. You ought to as well. Now look here. Look what he says. He says this is not just good for the brother and good for the person living foolishly, but it's also good for something else. Take a look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good, he says. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So what he's saying is you are the church. And if the church within the church among the brothers and sisters. So we're not talking about the world yet. Just right here. If we tolerate foolishness in one another. We tolerate sin in one another as an arrogance and a boastfulness to say we are so tolerant of one another, then we are actually foolish as a whole church because we are not saving one another from foolishness. And then we are celebrating and tolerating sin. And what does that do? It tells the world this. The monster is not a monster. Do you see? Sin doesn't matter. As long as you have Jesus, sin doesn't matter. Well, look, as long as you have Jesus, sin doesn't prevent you from having eternal, wondrous life, light, and freedom forever. Yes, sin cannot undo our salvation anymore. But does sin still matter? It's still a monster. It's still a monster. It's still trying to kill you, and it's still trying to kill me and kill our children. And so we ought to look at that and go, it's a monster. And when we see it in our midst among brothers and sisters, we ought to take action and engage and say, you're playing with a monster. Can we get rid of the monster? Because if we don't, we tell the world, sin doesn't matter. And then the world doesn't understand the gospel, and then the gospel doesn't rescue the way it should, and then the whole thing falls apart. And so Paul's going, do you understand how big this is? When we as the church don't protect each other from foolishness by engaging in one another's lives, then we are undoing not only safety for each other, but we are undoing the very essence of the beauty of this community. Now look what he says. What is it not? Look, I love this. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual Im- or sexually immoral people. Right? Look, look at this. Not at all meeting the sexual immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers and idolatrous, since then you would need to go out of the world. Do you see what Paul just masterfully did? We need to make sure we judge each other constantly in judgment of the foolishness and sin so that we can protect one another. Be watchmen. I'm writing to you to not associate in that beautiful community with those who are brothers and sisters who are currently thinking they can have the benefits of community while living in this ongoing sinful life. You need to give them a chance to kind of come awake, right? Like my kids. But if you think I'm telling you to judge the world, you're out of your mind. I'm not telling you to not associate with sexually immoral people from the world. Really? I need to hang with them? but not with someone in the church that's ongoing in that. Correct. And uh, greedy people in the world, hang out with them too. And people in the world that are acting crazy, hang out with them too. Why? What does the gospel invite us to do? To carry light, life, and freedom where? Into the world. And so he goes, if I was going to tell you not to hang out with them, I would have to tell you to leave the world. (laughs) And if that means you move somewhere to a little property in the middle of Wisconsin somewhere and put a fence around and stay away, then you are off mission you are off mission, carrying the gospel 
a steward of the gospel. So I'm certainly not telling you to judge the world. I'm certainly not telling you to correct the world. I'm certainly not telling you to tell the world how they're supposed to live. That's why they have 90% of their words, number top of the list is judgmental, because we ought not to judge them. Why? Why? Because how do you think someone's going to behave that doesn't know Jesus? I'll tell you how, unpredictably, right? Sometimes really good, sometimes really bad, who knows? I don't know what the standard is by which they function, so who knows what they'll do? But I do know the gospel, so I do know how we are supposed to behave. See, I have no measuring point for that, other than, uh, could be anything. But here I have a measuring point. We have the gospel, we have the word of God. I already know, so when I judge you and you judge me, we can judge rightly because we are not judging by our own wisdom, we are judging by God's wisdom. And so we can come to the table and say, I, I see things in you that don't line up with, with the gospel. I, I think you're living foolishly. But when I go to the world and I go, I think you're doing things that don't line up with the gospel, they go, I don't care, and what is the gospel? And we go, oh yeah, that's right. So Paul's saying, whatever you do, don't act in this way toward the world, the world you're supposed to love, God will judge the world. Look, he actually says it there. Look, he says it right here, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, verse 12? It is, not those ins- is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil people from among you. So he's saying, don't you dare judge the world. Now, when the world or the church or any other person on this planet is affecting injustice toward the defenseless, is it your duty to defend the defenseless? Yes. So, if babies are dying who are defenseless because the world thinks that's okay, is it our duty to defend the defenseless? Yes. If people are being trafficked because people think that's okay, is it our duty to defend the defenseless? Yes, and how do we do that? We use the judges and juries of our culture, we use the systems that we have, and we defend. Is it our job to judge those doing that? The answer is no, because they are outside. We defend the defenseless. We do not judge the motives of their heart, the brokenness in them. We just pray that the gospel would impact them because if they come to know Jesus, they'll stop doing all that stuff. You with me? So Paul says, listen, whatever you do, don't judge the outsiders, just inside. Now, we know we're supposed to judge inside, in-house. Here it is. (laughs) And now some of you are going, yes, I've been waiting for that. I got some things to tell some people. (laughs) Yep, I hear you. So allow me to clarify very quickly because I'm well over time, but this is important, so I'm going to run with it. Here we go, okay? Galatians chapter 6. We've talked about this verse before. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Listen to how Paul now articulates the way we protect each other. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, so there's the judgment, I see you living foolishly, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Thank you. So, point one, you do not ever engage in correcting one another unless you're doing it gently. If you're not doing it gently, you are in the wrong kind of judgment and you are above your pay grade. If you are judging the world, you are above your pay grade. If you are judging the motives of the heart, you are above your pay grade. If you are judging the thoughts of man, you are above your pay grade. If you're judging why someone's doing anything, you are above your pay grade. But if you are judging a particular behavior in them with gentleness by bringing it to their attention and inviting them back into wisdom, then you are where you need to be. You with me? 
So be gentle. Be gentle. Second, Matthew chapter 7. Who knew Jesus already taught us how to do this? <laughs> Just love that story. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, page 526. Listen, Matthew 7, 1, page 526. Judge not that you be not judged. There it is, famous verse. Let's look at the context. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. So when you're judging, make sure you're full of grace. Because whatever grace you bring to the table, it's going to come back to haunt you the next time around when you're acting foolishly. So judge with grace. The rabbis of old in Jesus' time, they actually used to make excuses for people when they did things because they didn't know the motive. So they would say the person's late and they'd go, you know what, I'm sure he's late because he had to stop in order to help somebody whose cart broke down along the side of the road. You know why they did that? Because they took this first and they're like, I'm gonna constantly measure motives with a boatload of grace. So when my motives are measured, they'd be measured with a boatload of grace. We are quick to gossip and quick to judge the motives of hearts. Do not do that. When you judge the actions, judge with a plenty of grace. Look what it says here. It doesn't stop there. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Is Jesus saying, don't take the speck out of your brother's eye? No, he's saying, before you do, check the log in yours. So when we approach a brother or a sister to correct them, how should we do it? In gentleness, with boatloads of grace, and before we go, we ought to evaluate our own sin. Not to make sure we don't have any, to get a clarity on how much we have. Let me say that again. Not to make sure we don't have any, but to gain a clarity on how much we have. So that we can be reminded as I correct my brother, it is not about me judging their sinfulness in comparison to mine because I am much worse. It is reminding me that the gospel has rescued me from my sin and already rescued them from theirs. So there is no judgment here. It is only safety and protection and correction. And I can go in with the log clearly in front of me going, here's my log. So we got that covered. I see a little speck on, on your shoulder. Can I help you brush it off? And so setting that right gives us great humility and clarity. Did you notice that? How can you clearly see how to correct another if you cannot even see your own sin? It gives us humility and clarity. So we walk in in view of our own sin. And then finally, uh, in Matthew chapter 18, I won't read the whole passage. You're aware of this one. In Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, Jesus says, if a brother sins against you, how do you do this? You go to him or her alone. And if it all goes well, you've won a brother. If it doesn't go well, you go to a couple of very wise, gentle, gracious, gospel-centric people, and you bring them with you as witnesses and say, can we talk this through? And if that doesn't go well, you gather a larger portion of the body, the church, and you say, can we work with that? And if that doesn't go well, then you do 1 Corinthians, and it actually says it in Matthew, if that doesn't go well, turn them over to Satan for a season that they might be reconciled to the gospel, right? Let the flesh burn that they might have their soul reminded of how devastating sin is and come back home. In 2 Corinthians, Paul actually writes to the church and says, the guy that I told you to cast out, time to forgive him and bring him back in. He actually says it. It's a beautiful end to that reconciling story. So where does that leave us? Allow me to visually uh, show you where that leaves us. To judge or not to judge is the question. Here it is, ready? If you are going to judge a person, 
his soul standing, his heart motivations, his faithfulness to call, that is reserved only for God. Don't do it. Okay? Don't ever do that. Don't ever do that because you are living in sin then because you shouldn't be judging. Okay? Of actions. If you are going to ever judge the actions of anyone outside the church, people that don't know Jesus, in other words. <laughs> reserved only for God. Don't do that. Okay? Defend the defenseless. Do not judge the world. Okay? They should not have on their list judgment as one of the descriptors for the church. Don't do that. If it's actions in the church, judge your brothers and sisters. Yes, check. But only under the following conditions, always without exception. With gentleness, full of grace, in view of your own sin, motivated by restoration, and within deep relationship. If it's outside of any of those parameters, you are living in sin and you should not be judging. It's crazy, isn't it? How awesome is that? And so Paul begins his journey to say, church, you want to be the church? This is how you go be the church. And this is our gift, our privilege, and our calling. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this wondrous description of where judgment is reserved for you and where we are invited into the protective form of judgment in one another's lives for the sake of reconciliation and protection only when it is under the parameters in which you allow us to live in that space so that it is godly and gentle and wondrous and that the experience is redemptive. Help us in our hearts and lives where we have judged outside of these parameters or where we do to step back and to start fresh. May we as a church begin to recalibrate the world's view of us from judgmental and hypocritical to beautiful and safe. May we become a space where every person who does not know you can find freedom and may we become a space where every person that does know you can find freedom as we gently love those who don't know you and as we gently correct those who do for the sake of the gospel, of your glory and of the expansion of your kingdom. Help us to be redemptive ambassadors of Christ in all that we do, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.